We're going to be in Matthew's Gospel again this morning at chapter 12. But before we go there, as I was just trying to explain without the sound system, I'd like to reread a portion of the scripture that Roger read this morning in the book of Psalms that is so relevant for where we are today in the study of God's Word. In Psalm 74, verse 19, I'll continue. Well, let's start with verse 18. The psalmist writes this, Remember this, that the enemy has reproached, O Lord, and that a foolish people has blasphemed your name. Oh, do not deliver the life of your turtle dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have respect to the covenant, for the dark places of the earth are full of the haunts of cruelty. Oh, do not let the oppressed return ashamed. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, plead your own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you daily. Do not forget the voice of your enemies. The tumult of those who rise up against you increases continually. In our study of Matthew's Gospel today, we are going to be looking at that continuation of the opposition of Jesus Christ by the Pharisees and the scribes, the leaders of the people in Israel, of the Jewish faith. They should have recognized this is the Messiah. Some of the people were beginning to realize this and began to wonder, is it? Is it possible? But the Pharisees and the scribes didn't want that to happen. They were so opposed now to what Jesus was doing that, as we saw last time, they are now plotting against him to try to destroy him. And they'll do everything in their power to persuade the people that this Jesus is a man who is not from God, but from the enemy of our souls. How wrong can they be? How blind can they be? How deaf can they be to what is being seen and heard? But such it is as well in this day and age. And so there's a very great similarity between what was going on in that day with the people of God in the land of Israel and what is happening in our world today. Nothing much has changed The writer of Ecclesiastes says it well. Nothing is new under the sun. Everything that we see has been seen before. Oh, in different ways, in different means by which those evil things are accomplished, evil still is being accomplished in the world around us. It was so then, it is so now. So as we read this wonderful passage in Matthew's Gospel. Keep in mind that not only is it a message to Jesus' day and the people who lived and heard and saw and walked with Him and were blessed by His presence, but it also is true in this present hour. Matthew chapter 12, beginning with verse 15. The verse we ended with last time, verse 14, I'll repeat again. It tells us that then, after his healing this man on the Sabbath day, then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. A turning point now has been made obvious by Matthew. They are out to get rid of him. 
And Jesus is aware of that. And so after everyone leaves the synagogue where he had healed this man whose hand had been withered, he also goes out, and in the midst of all the multitude that were gathering around him, verse 15 proceeds to explain, but when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Not just a few, but all who came to him. He demonstrated his power. Like nowhere else, by no one else, there is no other person ever who has been able to do the things that Jesus had done except by the Spirit of God because He did send His twelve disciples out, you'll remember, and they were told by Him that when you go from city to city, it was His expectation that they would heal the sick, that they would raise the dead even, cast out demons, all in the name of Jesus. He had given to them that power which He Himself had. But the multitudes were coming to in great numbers. Mark tells us from all over, not just Israel, but from Tyre and Sidon up in the territory of Lebanon today, in the Decapolis, that region east of the Jordan River, which was a place where mostly Gentiles resided, all the way from there, from Judah also, from the south, they were coming to the Galilee region to hear this man of God. And the Pharisees and the scribes hated this. Why? Well, there are a few reasons we can zero in on. First of all, he was invading their territory. They were jealous. They weren't getting the crowds that Jesus was getting. They were taking away, or he was taking away their income. Because people who were flocking to Jesus instead of them, they weren't coming to them for advice, for help. They were coming to Jesus. Because they knew Jesus had the remedy. Not so with the Pharisees. They had maybe some words that they could share from even the Word of God, but they didn't have power. Jesus had power. And they were jealous of that power. There were many other reasons as well, but that's suffice to know that that was cause for them to be angry at the fact that the crowds were following this man from Galilee. And he healed them all. It tells us then in verse 16, Matthew says, Yet... He warned them not to make Him known. That's remarkable. How can anybody being healed by Jesus, having been blind and now you can see, having been deaf and now you can hear, having been lame and now you can walk, having all kinds of infirmities that have been completely taken care of, being a leper, completely healed of your leprosy, how can you not say anything? But Jesus didn't want them to make a lot of noise about it. The reason is, primarily, that it wasn't time for him. There would come a time when he would say, follow me. Whenever they would say, Lord, I want to follow you, he would tell them, no, go your own way. Don't make any noise about this. Keep it to yourself. I don't know that that's possible, but that's what he was telling them. But the word was spreading anyway, in spite of the fact that he had been telling them, so much so that he couldn't even be in the midst of all that number of people that were coming to the extent where he had to teach from offshore in a boat 
sometimes at the Sea of Galilee with a crowd on the shoreline, just crowding into him, so pressing on so much so that he really wasn't able to teach what he wanted to teach them without separating himself somehow from the mass of people who were following him. So he's warning them not to make any noise about this, and yet there were many who were spreading the name of Christ throughout the region. But Matthew says the reason he said that, and this is very, very important for us to catch what Matthew is explaining here, Matthew now will quote Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. Isaiah spoke of the Messiah, and this is a messianic prophecy that everybody, including the Pharisees and the scribes, recognized to be about the one that God was going to send for the people. But pay attention to what Matthew says in this portion of Scripture that he's now quoting. In verse 16, he warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. Whoa, wait a minute. Justice to the Gentiles. Hey, that's you and me, unless you happen to be Jewish by birth. Most of us here, I believe, are not. But listen, what Isaiah was saying in the Old Testament was that this servant of God, this one that they recognize as the Messiah who was to come, is going to minister to the Gentiles? That's unheard of. That's absolutely beyond what they could ever possibly accept. Because after all, aren't the Gentiles fodder for hell? Aren't the Gentiles to be avoided? And it was so in that day. Any good Jew would walk to the other side of the street. If they saw a Gentile coming down the street on the side that you were walking on, you would avoid going anywhere near a Gentile. You wouldn't go into a Gentile's home. You wouldn't even want to talk to a Gentile. You avoided them at all costs. And that's one of the reasons why they hated the Romans, because the Roman soldiers were all over the place. And they despised the Roman Gentiles for ruling over them, the Jewish people. One of the things in Psalm 74 that we saw here is that there was in David's day an oppression, or shortly after David's time. Perhaps this psalm was written around the time of the Babylonian captivity. There's much argument for that, to favor that idea. And this psalmist is writing, Oh, Lord, look, they've destroyed everything. Your temple has been taken down, and people are dead all over the place. Why, O oh Lord, have you allowed this? So he's mourning, he's lamenting the terrible conditions, and he's talking about those who oppress them. But frankly, in Jesus' day, the ones who were oppressing Jesus and his followers were his own people, not the Babylonians, not the Assyrians, not the Egyptians, but the Jewish leaders oppressing the people of God. There was no excuse for it. They should have seen. And Matthew is here quoting this portion of Isaiah to prove that this one that the Old Testament did speak of is coming not only to reign as king in Jerusalem, but he's coming as a servant, and the entire Gentile world is going to be recognizing him for who he is. That's a slap in the face to any Pharisee or scribe in that day. 
They could not ever possibly agree with such a statement, but it was in their Old Testament Scriptures. How could they not agree with it? So instead of really agreeing with that which was spoken in the Old Testament by the prophets of God, they just simply disregarded those passages. Suffering servant made no sense to them. As a matter of fact, many of the common Jews in that day, the citizens of that region, had to struggle with the same understanding or lack of understanding with regard to the suffering servant. But it was in their word of God. And Matthew is here pointing that out. Remember, Matthew originally wrote this book for Jewish minds. He's pointing out to a Jewish audience that Jesus is indeed a servant and that the servant was prophesied by the Old Testament writers. Continuing on with what he's quoting here with regard to Isaiah's prophecy. It tells us in verse 19, speaking of this wonderful Messiah, He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear His voice in the streets. A bruised reed He will not break, and smoking flax He will not quench, till He sends forth justice to victory, and in His name Gentiles will trust. Wow. Again, he mentions the Gentiles, trusting in this Messiah. But notice what he says. He says, this is Isaiah speaking, he will not quarrel, verse 19, or cry out in the streets. He's not going to be one who is going to take vengeance on those who are opposing him. He's not one who's going to stand there and argue with them. He's going to let them say what they want to say, and he's not going to quarrel. And that was how Jesus operated. He didn't confront them, except for a few momentary points in time where he would say, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! (laughs) Yeah, that was confrontational. But for the most part, Jesus avoided confrontation. And in that doing so, he fulfilled this word of Isaiah. He won't take a bruised reed and break it. It's a reference to somebody who is weakened. A burning flax that the fire has gone out and just a smoke coming up from the, uh, the flax, which was the candlestick uh, of that day, basically. He wasn't coming for the purpose that many of them thought he was coming for at that time. Again, everybody in the Jewish nation thought that the Messiah was going to get rid of all of those Roman oppressors, establish the throne of David once again, in Jerusalem, to be seated as king. That would happen. But that's not why he came this time. And Isaiah prophesies about that. A completely different concept of the Messiah recorded here by Matthew than what they anticipated in that day. It was so for the average person. It was so especially for the Pharisees and scribes. But now Matthew continues and as he's now quoted this passage in Isaiah, he develops his teaching of the purpose of Jesus Christ's coming. And he says in verse 22, Then one was brought to him was, who was demon-possessed, blind and mute. So he couldn't see, he couldn't talk. And he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. This is a remarkable healing that takes place. Now, Jesus had cast out demons already many times. 
But this man was uniquely different in that he was both blind and mute. And the understanding in that day of exorcism by many of the Jews, who some of which were actually performing this kind of exorcism ministry, some successfully. Even Josephus records successful exorcisms that took place in the nation of of the Jews during his days, around the same time as Jesus. But for Jesus to heal a blind and mute of demon possession was uniquely powerful. Because typically the Jewish understanding was that they, in order to cast out some demon from an individual, they had to know who the demon was. You may even remember one instance in the New Testament where Jesus asked asked who, who it is that the demon was that had possessed this individual. He said, what is your name? And the demon responded, or I should say demons, plural, we are legion, for we are many. There were several demons in that particular individual, and they responded to Jesus asking the question, what is your name, by identifying themselves. That was a standard technique of the Jews in Jesus' day, to inquire of the demon, what is your name? Now, if the guy is mute, they wouldn't have expected that he could answer that question. Jesus comes along and he heals a person who is blind and mute, presumably in that condition because of a demon, and he casts the demon out of that man without asking any questions. It just says he healed the blind and mute. And so he spoke and he saw. This is remarkable. Another miracle that he himself only was able to do. They weren't able to cast this out, but Jesus did. So the Pharisees and scribes who witnessed this event, now they've got a problem, a real problem. Not only did he heal the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day in the presence of all who were in the synagogue, but now he's delivered this demon-possessed man from his possession in the midst of a multitude, and they've got to say something about that. They have to acknowledge that the miracle has taken place because nobody would dispute the fact that this blind man, this man who could not speak, is now able to see and able to talk without difficulty. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. And they had to agree. They had to understand that there's no way out of acknowledging this. Simple truth. Yep. He did a miracle. But, listen to what they explain regarding this miracle. Verse 24 says, Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. They've already in chapter 10 accused Jesus of using the power of Satan, referring to him as Beelzebub. In some translations, Beelzebul. The word in the original Greek is somewhat of a difficult word to translate. And some other translations use Beelzebul, which implies that they were saying he's the Lord of the Flies, or the Lord of the dung heap. It's appropriate, it's accurate, it's good. Other translations, like this one, use the phrase Beelzebub, which is also a reference to 
one who is a lord, but in this case, Beelzebub means lord of the house. And I think that fits better with what Jesus is now going to say in response to their accusation. But whether it's Beelzebul or Beelzebub, they are saying Satan was the source of his power. He casts out demons by the ruler of demons. He casts out demons by Satan himself. He's using Satan's authority, not God's. That is blasphemous. And Jesus is going to point that out. Using a couple of examples, he's going to show them how illogical they are in their assessment. In verse 25 it tells us, But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. So if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? This is beautiful logic that cannot be refuted by them. They were saying, he's casting out demons by Satan. Jesus is saying, well, if that's the case, then he's fighting against himself. Why would he do that? If he's already got the man demon-possessed, why should he cast the the demon out of the man and set the man free? It made no common sense for them to say that he was doing it by the power of Satan. It's great logic. It's perfect. It cannot be refuted. This passage, by the way, is one that I believe we should focus on part of our time here this morning. Because again, in verse 25, it tells us, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided itself against itself will not stand. You may be familiar with the fact that Abraham Lincoln said that very thing during the time of the Civil War. A house divided against itself shall not stand. He quoted the New Testament Scriptures. Abraham Lincoln wasn't the first one to come up with a line Jesus did. But listen, it's true. A house divided against itself shall not stand. You look around at what's going on in our world today, especially in this country, just from this last week's events. And there were other things that were going on before that that were dividing us as a people. We used to be known as a melting pot where all people could come together under one federal headship and enjoy the benefits, the freedoms that we all had collectively as a group of people. We were one nation under God. That is no longer the case, my friends. And it's getting far, far more dangerously worse than it ever has And this last week alone is cause for great division. And I'm concerned for our nation. Are you? I hope you are. I hope you're praying fervently for the people who are on both sides of this issue. First of all, pray for protection for those that you know are right with God with regard to this pro-life, pro-choice division. Pro-life ministries are in great danger these days. Threats have been made and some threats have been already carried out and I believe it's not going to stop for a while longer. And I don't believe our federal government is going to lift a finger to prevent that. They're just as much opposed to the 
decision that was made by the Supreme Court as the far left. The majority of people in government are just as happy to see pro-life people get hurt. It's for a cause. And I believe that that cause is going to continue to separate and that separation will continue to destroy us as a nation. So people, we need to be praying for them who are involved in faithful ministries where they have encouraged women to carry that child full term to save the life of the unborn and end this terrible worship of Molech that has been going on for so many years now, offering up the children to the God of the Gentiles. It won't come to an end completely, but at least this decision by the federal... uh, the uh, SCOTUS. At least that decision is a step in the right direction. And many states are already legislating well with laws that protect the unborn. This state is not one of them, by the way. But there is division. There is trouble ahead. It was so in Jesus' day when He was talking about the fact that that division existed between Himself and the rulers of the people, the Pharisees and the scribes. So again, Jesus says, look, if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself, but how then will his kingdom stand? And then in verse 27, he says, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. So Jesus is saying, look, you guys, here's another example. You support those exorcists who are doing that work Some successfully, some not. But why is it that you don't think that they are casting out demons by the power of the uh, Beelzebub? It doesn't make any sense to choose to say that about me if you're not going to say that about them. Again, the logic is certain. It's complete. It's solid. They had no argument against what Jesus is here saying. They still don't today. Anyone who is against the words of Christ still faces the same challenge. And they cannot refute the words of Jesus, no matter how hard they try. Better if they just simply disregard the words of Jesus. They're safer that way. Point people to a different alternative lifestyle. Point people to a different understanding, a philosophy that is godless. Point people to the idea that there is no God and you won't have to argue about Jesus anymore because people aren't going to consider Jesus to be a valid person to consider. Well, what did Jesus say? What would Jesus do? It makes no difference to them. Jesus was just a teacher, like so many others who have come along the scene and disappeared. So they can get rid of the idea that Jesus was something more than just a teacher by convincing people 
that there is no God, by convincing people that other gods are just as valid. Many tools at Satan's disposal, but none of them will work with those of us who have come to an understanding of who Jesus is. And that is only by the power of the Spirit of God, my friends. Not by any of our abilities, no strength, no merit, no anything that we can bring to the table would suffice. It was only by the grace of God that the Holy Spirit pointed the way so that you could come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, to faith in His name, in what He has done. People, there is no other way for salvation. Verse 28, Jesus continues and says, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So he's saying, look, I've just proven to you that I'm not doing this by the power of Beelzebub, by Satan's power. I'm doing it by the power of the Spirit of God. And if I do so, you should understand that the kingdom of God is right here in your midst. And verse 29 says, Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man and then he will plunder his house? And then in verse 30, he says something so, so very important. Listen carefully. Jesus' words, he says this, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Look, there's no neutral ground, in other words. Jesus is saying it's black or it's white. You are on one side or you are on the other. There's no middle ground here. There's no neutrality here. You can't say, well, I know Jesus was a good man, but I'm not really ready to follow him. I'm going to consider other options. Well, you're already making a decision against Christ. If you've chosen not to follow Jesus and obey His commands, you have rejected Jesus. And in your rejection of Jesus, you have done what Jesus is here saying. You're scattering abroad instead of gathering with Him. You need to make a choice. And the Bible is always clear this is a simple choice, a one or the other matter. You either are for Him or you are against Him. You cannot say, I don't know yet. Because if you say, I don't know yet, you're against Him. Understand this. It is all or nothing. You cannot stand at the judgment seat of Christ and say, well, I just didn't know, Lord God Almighty. I mean, you did talk about it, but there were so many other voices. And the answer from God will be simply this. Why didn't you listen to the one voice? The one who said, I am the truth, the way, the light. I am the resurrection. I am the life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. I am the door. I am everything you need. Just go into that place where I have provided and you will find rest for your souls. Nowhere else can you find such rest. Nowhere else can you find such peace. Nowhere else can you find forgiveness but in the arms of Jesus alone? 
Why resist such an invitation as this? The Spirit of God speaks today. And He's inviting people today to do that which He invited people to do in Jesus' day. He was working then and He's working now in the hearts and lives of many, many people throughout the world. He's saying, come. Come. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Drink of the water that is free. He who is not with me is against me. And as a result of that statement, now Jesus talks about something that is a very, very scary topic. In verse 31, he says, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Perhaps you all have heard messages about the unpardonable sin. John tells us in 1 John chapter 5 that there is a sin unto death. We call that sin unto death the unpardonable sin. But what is it? What did Jesus refer to when he was saying this? Is it possible for any of us who have become believers in Jesus Christ to commit the unpardonable sin? One of the things, and I've gotten this question on more than one occasion, have I committed the unpardonable sin? And my answer is always the same. If you're concerned about it, then you have not. If you have some concern that maybe you've stepped over the line, you are not there. Now, the Bible does talk about, in Romans especially, chapter 1, talking about the fact that there are those who will come to a place where He will give them over to their reprobate minds. In other words, there's no turning back. They've reached a point where they've cut themselves off and they don't don't want anything to do with Christ. They don't want anything to do with the salvation that He has offered them. They have hardened their hearts to such an extent that they will not turn. Now, even the Pharisees and scribes, Mark tells us very specifically about this event that is being spoken of here in Matthew. Mark's record gives us the fact that they are close to blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But while they have breath, there's still hope that they can turn, that they would turn, that they would, and many of them did, realize the error of their ways and accept Christ. And in accepting Christ, their sins would be forgiven. So as far as we are concerned in this present age, there is an unpardonable sin that only those who have died without accepting Christ as their Lord and Savior will enter into judgment and that sin that we call the unpardonable sin was be simply this, the rejection of Jesus Christ all of your life. And then when you face the judgment, there is no other sin that you may have committed that matters as far as God is concerned. The one sin that matters, what did you do with Jesus? That's all. What did you do with Jesus? That is unpardonable as far as God is concerned. If you say, 
I didn't believe it. But I did good. I, I didn't believe the words of Jesus were all that special, but I, I, I went to church. I believed in God. But that Jesus thing bothered me. Well, if that's the case, then you're no better than the demons who also say, I believe God. The demons believe in God and they tremble, James tells us, because they have no salvation available to them. They believed in God because they knew that God exists. There's no excuse for anyone. The heavens declare the glory of God and the earth His handiwork. There is no excuse for anyone. Lastly, Jesus says, look, you can tell. You can tell by fruit what a person believes. And this is what he explains. He says in verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. How many of you have seen an apple tree with oranges on it? A tree is known by its fruit. It's a simple explanation Jesus is giving here. Look, all you need to do is observe. You can see by observing other people where they stand with Jesus Christ by looking at the fruit of their lives. And then, remember I had said earlier that Jesus doesn't typically confront the Pharisees and the scribes, except for on a few occasions. Here is one of them, another one of them. In verse 34, he said, Oh, brood of vipers! How can you, being evil, speak good things? Now, he's pointing out to the fact they are not good trees. He's observed their fruit. And their fruit has given away everything that he needed in order to bring a conclusion to the matter. Brood of vipers. That's a slam. How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, and out of their heart everything that was coming out was certainly not good. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasures brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Simple fact. Your fruit is what he looks at. What kind of fruit am I bearing? What kind of fruit are you bearing? What kind of tree are you? What kind of tree am I? The one way that we can be certain that we're bearing good fruit is if, as Jesus said in John chapter 14, we are abiding in the vine Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. And God is pruning, and God is doing a work in our lives 
is for the purpose of making us to be able to bear much fruit. But if we're connected to that vine, we are in a good place. Because it's the source of life itself for all who believe. Stay connected. That's what the word abide means. It means stay connected. Don't depart from it. Don't allow yourself to be cut off from it. Stay connected to the vine. And having stayed in that place, you'll have life eternal. You'll have fruit that you will be able to bear. And some will bear more fruit than others. But the point is this. You're connected to that vine. There's no other way but through Jesus Christ to get saved. To enter into that place where you can stand before God unashamed. The only option then is to stand before God on the day of judgment, the great white throne judgment. You don't want to be there. You don't want to be there. And the simple way to avoid it is by saying yes to the invitation that Jesus makes to everyone while you yet have breath. He wants fruit. I want to give it. Do you?